So tonight I'll address the way of heartfulness, talk a little bit about why I've chosen this title for the retreat and also why it speaks to me, this way of heartfulness. It might also be said that we might call it the way to the heart, the way to the heart. And what does that mean, the way to the heart or our heart? I mean, for me, it's something about meeting myself, knowing myself in in an authentic and a true way, becoming intimate with my inner world and the world around me. In some way, this speaks to me as the heart, the heartful, the heartful way, rather than just responding to myself, to others, to the world around me, through my distorted perceptions and my limited views, my old habits of thinking, which really aren't very true a lot of the time. They're just distorted. And so it seems that moving more into the heart has to do with cutting through these ways of thinking that are not true, not helpful. And so the heart for me is a metaphor for dropping out of the thinking mind, dropping out of that habitual way of thinking into a different part of my being. We might call that also intuitive wisdom, an intuitive knowing, a knowing that doesn't arise necessarily through thought, through thinking about, but some quieter voice inside that we need to respond to that certainly does come through thought, but it's not the usual way of repetitive, habitual thinking that we find ourselves getting caught in. In the group today, the group, both groups, some people in the groups were talking about that longing to hear that deeper voice that quieter voice within, because the usual way of thinking isn't leading them to the resolution that they would like. And and a few people mentioned about wanting to get quieter in themselves so they could hear a deeper voice, a more true voice. True meaning something that, a voice that's responding more to their deepest part of their being which seems to get covered over and uh, hard to hear when we get caught up in our usual way of being in our life. And, and it's not just the way we get caught up, but caught up, but it's also the culture itself, the speed and the manicness of the culture that many of us live in. So we might say that this process here is a healing journey to the heart, a way of healing ourselves so that we are living in a more true and authentic way that feels more right, that feels right in our being. Dropping out of this craziness of the thinking mind. And some of you talked about that today as well. Of course, it always shows itself quite strongly on the first day of a retreat in that contrast. What we come in with 
is more of that busyness of mind and we come into such a silent space and the contrast is very apparent. The outer silence and the inner noise. We really see it so clearly. So we long for more balance, more integration, more harmony of our being, of our spirit. And it seems that in order to have this, to achieve this, we have to actively confront that which is not necessarily pleasant in our lives, that which is somewhat painful or unsatisfactory or conflicting. It seems that we actually have to move into that, those past memories, the old wounds, some of the trauma, some of the unresolved issues in our lives in order to really come to a place of balance, to a place of healing. I think a lot of people think they can miss that, miss that over, uh, we don't have to necessarily go into the sorrowful part, but through meditation we might find a way out, <laughs> a quick escape. And it's true that in many meditative practices, through deep states of concentration and striving, it's possible to move into some very uh, ecstatic and clear states of mind. And it's possible to actually sustain those states of mind for some time through the continuation of those concentration practices. And some, some places that is encouraged. And it is a pathway. And yet it seems that, and it's been somewhat documented, that even for those who do choose that pathway and do achieve some very high states of consciousness, that when they return back into their worldly life or back into relationship, back into functioning in the world, the very same issues are there that have always been there all along. The unresolved issues, traumas, wounds, uh, the unresolved issues within. One of my teachers in India tells a story that I think exemplifies this bit. One of the stories he loved very well. And he was actually trying to make this very point to uh, get us to not get attracted to the sublime states of consciousness. It's a story of a, of, a, of a king, an ancient king in India, who decided to leave the palace and wander for a while. And he went to a house of some peasants, and he uh, walked in, and there were these mother, the uh, wife and the husband, and they recognized him as royalty, as a king, and also on the spiritual path. So they're really revering him and honoring him, and he sat down and they asked if there was anything that he wanted. And he said, yes, I just would like a glass of water. And so when they went to get the glass of water, he went into a very ecstatic place, deep, deep place of consciousness, a high state of consciousness, deep samadhi. And he was gone. He was just completely absorbed into this, this samadhi state. And the some hours passed and some, the day passed and then the next few days passed and he was still completely absorbed in this wonderful 
place of light and spaciousness and bliss. And a few more days passed, and a week passed, and he's just sitting there by the by the fireplace. And of course, the uh, the householders didn't disturb him. Three weeks passed. He's just you know in ecstasy. And then one day, he opens his eyes. He wakes up, and the first thing he says is, "Where's that glass of water?" Nothing really changed <laughs> in the relative world. He was still right where he was before he went into samadhi. Right there. Where's that glass of water? And had to start from there. And my teacher, Punjaji, who I spent some time with in India, he, lo- he told the story a number of times. He loved telling the story just to remind us there's something more. There's something more. We don't necessarily need to escape into these states of consciousness through meditation, but we can feel and know that state of peace and contentment and ease right here, right here in the world, just as we are sitting here now, as we're being here now. We don't have to necessarily achieve anything in our meditations, but we can rather wake up to something within us that's here right now, that has never gone away, but is waiting for us to notice it, to recognize it. Another um, great teacher, Deepama, who was a, an Indian woman who was a teacher of our teachers, um, Joseph Goldstein, Sharon Salzberg, so that group of people from America. And Deepama, who has passed away now this last decade, was also very um, powerful in her attainments. She was a great practitioner, and she had, was able to achieve some very strong psychic powers and healing powers, healing powers of touch. And it was always very interesting to me. And I met her, uh, her teacher, Manindraji, uh, about two years ago, and I was very interested in what how she came about to have these great powers. And I asked him, I said, well, you know, if you practice these strong concentration practices, particularly uh, what's called the jhanas, the jhanas are these states of absorption that one can enter into for some very amazing experiences and also the consequences of of strong power. I said, because I was interested, you know, just kind of, questioning, <laughs> is that something that maybe I should pursue? Uh, sounds very tantalizing. And um, he said, I said, well, what about Deepama? You know, she's supposed to have all these wonderful powers, and, uh, you know, what's the scoop, basically? And Manindraji said, who is a, this uh, Calcutta, a man from Calcutta, great teacher, still alive, he said, yes, Deepama had these great powers of concentration and powers to be able to, to heal and to uh, almost telepathic at, at times, but only when she was practicing jhanas. When she stopped practicing, when she stopped the practices of the intensive concentration, they went as well. So he said, don't bother so much with those. That's not really what the practice is about. One can get sidetracked. One can get distracted into these 
wonderful states of consciousness. So that went in. (laughs) I marked that and went back to my Vipassana practice, you know, paying attention to breath and thought and feeling and sensation, you know, back to the mundane, back to the ordinary, back to the painful, back to that which is part of our reality, the unpleasant, unsatisfactory, painful experiences that come about as well as the pleasant and the joyful and the easy and the calm. But they come together when we're really here, when we're really present, when we're, when we're not absorbed in uh, deep states of meditation. That's life, that's life. Life is this movement of the unpleasant to the pleasant, back to the unpleasant, along that continuum, um, and the neutral sensations and feelings in between. We just move along that continuum, back and forth, back and forth. So to really integrate, to really find balance in our practice, it seems that we have to learn how to open to all of the experiences, experiences of life the blissful and the joyful and the happy experiences and sensations, but also those that are not so joyful. Because it seems that the, the unresolved issues in our lives, the, the events that happened in our past that have sometimes been quite traumatic and wounding, actually operate within our being in a strong way. They're like unconscious forces that... Are pr- that, that come forth in the present moment and inform our way of being in the world. And unless we are actually able to begin to go inwardly deep enough to start to touch some of those deep wounds, they may continue to inform the way that we are in present time. And it is it is shown through people who have been meditating for some time that, in fact, we can touch into these deep places within ourselves and we can heal. We can resolve those, those wounds from the past and, and so that they're no longer operating within us in a strong way. Those forces die down. They die away. So they're not acting, so acting out within our consciousness, within our being. And it seems that that's really wise practice, wise spiritual practice, is that real integration of our being, rather than being able to just achieve high states, high states of, of, of joy and bliss and ecstasy through certain practices. So in a way, we are rediscovering, rediscovering something that is very essential and very true within ourselves rather than being run or being controlled by these forces from our past, the past conditioning, that there's a possibility of overcoming the past so it's no more, no longer informing us to the extent that it does. Of course, we would want to find a way to overcome this, 
so that we didn't have to necessarily go into these places of pain. I wanted to um, just quote something from Mark Epstein, who wrote The Thought Without the Thinker. It's a popular book that's come out in the last year or so. He says that a popular misconception of selflessness is dissolving, is when we actually dissolve into ecstatic union, into a state of oneness, a a trance state, when we lose our sense of ego, our ego boundaries. He says that Freud called this, um, that oceanic feeling, the sense of dissolving. And it can also almost feel like a, a numb state in which nothing need be felt. It's a, a, kind of a numbness. But this isn't, this isn't it. It's a, it's a misconception. It's not really what selflessness is about or that, that sense of real uh, uh, connecting with the truth of our being. He, Epstein says that uh, stress reduction, there can be a popular... Uh, misconception of stress reduction that is a dissolving our tensions into a pool of bliss, blissful feelings that make them at one with the universe. I think you know these kinds of experiences. We sort of long for that sense when it, we just dissolve into that, that oceanic pool. But it may not be really what's being talked about. It's almost like a kind of annihilation. It can be, it can be a, a way that we're trying to annihilate the sense of ourselves so we don't have to feel. We don't have to, to know what's deeper within our unconscious. But actually, we don't, rather than annihilating a sense of ourselves, we actually have to learn new ways of how to experience ourselves learn to experience ourselves in a new way. And this seems to come about, this, this is the healing, that seems to come about with mindfulness and loving attention. This is the, this is the new way. <laughs> By actually bringing that loving attention to ourselves, to our being, to our experiences, to our bodies, to our minds, to our senses and all that comes into our senses. Today, in the guided meditation, for those of you who were here, we were just doing that as we moved the attention through the body, starting at the head and going down through the body all the way into the toes. It was just the exploring the possibility of bringing loving attention, loving meaning a non-interfering kind of attention, where we're really present with each part of our body. And that included the tension that included the places of holding, the places of tightness, the discomfort in our body, to see if we can, rather than resist feeling them and not wanting to feel those places of, of, of uh, uh, discomfort and tension in our body, we actually embrace those experiences and bring them into consciousness. We invite the tensions into consciousness. We invite the unpleasant sensations in ourselves, in our bodies, into consciousness. And then we touch that, or we, we kiss that, we embrace that with, with love, with, with gentleness, with tenderness. 
And it seems that this is the power, this has the power to allow these tensions to release. And these tensions are the accumulations of our past. Not all of them. There's actually, if we, if we look at pain, if we explore pain for a moment, there are, we might say there's two kinds of pain. There's the pain that arises or the discomfort that arises that it actually comes perhaps through sitting in a posture that we're not familiar with, the strain that we put on our bodies through, through this unfamiliarity. The actual, the, 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 some of the pain that arises may be signals of some impending illness or some illness that's arising or um, some message that there's a genuine concern of something that needs attending to. Perhaps we have um, you know, some, an injury in our knee that we may need to have an operation on and we're feeling the, the pain from that. It's a different kind of pain. That's the kind of pain that does need some kind of direct response. It needs some kind of direct attention and action. But then there's this other kind of pain that I'm addressing now. It's the pain that arises through the accumulated tension over time that we aren't so aware of, that is pretty much in our unconscious a lot of the time. And then we come to a meditation retreat and we sit down and we're very quiet and we're not having many distractions or stimulations and then we start to feel <laughs> what's happening in our bodies. And we feel our bodies in a way that we may never have felt them before. And all kinds of things may start to go on. And these tensions, these, these um, holdings, these knots that we experience, when we, when we bring our awareness to them, what we may also be aware of is that there are images that arise, or thoughts, or memories, or associations that come up as we are attending ourselves in this way. And when we're not pushing it out of consciousness, when we're not denying it or pretending it's not there or avoiding or denying in some way, this embracing with, with loving attention allows for it to release. It brings it, it brings it up into consciousness so that it can be seen. It's not, no more pressure is being put on ourselves in those areas of our body. We're not resisting it. We're not necessarily feeling afraid. And we allow it to surface and then it can move. It can be released. And we find that the more that we allow ourselves to be with these tensions, that we actually start to find that the energy starts to move. Ways that we have felt blocked, ways that we felt uh, 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 defended, or ways we felt uh, trapped in ourselves, something starts to shift, something starts to move. And we start to feel a real sense of freedom in ourselves in ways we haven't before. A friend of mine just made a very strong, very big change in his life. Moved from England, went to a new place, went through incredible challenges of facing a new culture, new work, new college course, all that. And by staying with it and sticking with it and really facing those challenges, something's really shifted within him. And I just saw him a few weeks ago and it seemed like there was a whole new lease of en- a re- a release of energy 
experiencing him with energy that I'd never seen before. And it seems like something can move when we really have the intention to go on this journey and to look at ourselves in ways we may not have before. And what we find in talking with, about pain is that when we, when we look at the pain and hold the pain in a new way, what we find is that that which seemed quite solid and quite stuck, quite blocked in ourselves, actually isn't as solid as we originally thought. But what it becomes is actually more a series and a, a, a texture of changing sensations that discomfort that we felt in our knee might start to feel like, like tingling and heat and vibration and, and density and uh, tightness and aching. But it's, it's not just this <laughs> kind of abstract mass of, of pain. But even that, that, that sensation itself comes to life like constellations in the sky, they start to twinkle and move and shift and vibrate. And there's a whole new relationship to our body in a way we may not have experienced before, rather than just this solid lump <laughs> with, with pain and discomfort. A whole new sense of that texture and aliveness and movement right within the discomfort itself without that even having to change at all. It seems that when we can really honor ourselves, honor our bodies in this way, in a way we reclaim our feelings, we reclaim our instincts, we reclaim that intuitive wisdom that gets covered over when we're not attending, when we're not really meeting ourselves. We're not holding ourselves in that intimate way. Last summer, I had the opportunity to participate in a four-day vision quest. And maybe some of you are aware of what it means to go on a vision quest. Um, But what I did was I took up a challenge. I faced my my deep fears, and I went out, uh, it's a structure, it's a, it's a form that's held with a support, a support team, and I went out on the moor, on the Dartmoor, for four days and four nights, alone, um, fasting, without a tent, and just a, um, a tarp or a cloth, a cloth with some rope. That, I, that was what I was supposed to do, so that's what I did. <laughs> and um, about, uh, about a 20-minute walk from where, uh, from where I was set up, there was a base camp with my support person there in case I needed anything. And there was a system we had each day where uh, we had a, a, a place that was called a buddy pile. And it, what it is is a, p- a place where there's some rocks and in the morning, I would go and rearrange the rocks, and then my, my support person would come in the evening and check that the rocks were rearranged so they'd know, he'd know I was okay. And so for four days and four nights, um, 
I wasn't to have any contact with any other being except myself in these conditions. Well, they say you get what you need. (laughs) And for some reason, it was in June, but it rained for four days and for four nights. I think in that period of time, the sun came out for two hours in the middle of the afternoon, and the rest of the time, I am not exaggerating, it rained. (laughs) And not only did it rain, but it rained hard, and it was dark, and the skies were gray, and um, from the first walk out to my camp, my boots got sopping wet, and so for four days I had very wet and cold boots. And it was incredible. It was incredibly challenging and one of the hardest things I've ever done. Um, And the reason I'm bringing it up right now is because it forced me (laughs) to be in my body because there was nowhere else to go. There was no escape. There was no escape unless I went back into base camp and said, forget it, I'm not doing this anymore, which um, that thought certainly arose a few times. And I found, by staying with it, um, on the fourth morning, when it, when it continued to rain and continued to rain, and I was really at my limit of being able to stay in that, that, that space of, of, of challenge, I did go into base camp and said, I don't know if I can do this anymore. <laughs> and um, my support person said, well, maybe you would just like to finish your quest in the tent up on the hill, which I did. And so for that last afternoon and night, I was able to stay in a tent, which felt like heaven. And it felt like, uh, like I'd been released from, from the, the, the cave of the demons. So um, I find that how many months, eight months, nine months later, that something remains in me that happened while I was out there facing the darkest, the darkest uh, places in my being, um, I find that there was a way that by being so closely pushed into the earth, into the elements, into nature, that it forced me to also see that I am that too. I am just nature. I am the earth. I am no different than the earth. And I feel that part of myself in a way I never have before. I feel myself as earth. And I am not, in a way, I'm not expecting anything more of myself than, the, that, than what happens in the cycles of nature. The changes from the light to the dark, to the rain, to the sunshine, to the winter, to the summer, the cycles, the cycles of the seasons. And that within me, I go through the same cycles. And that that there isn't anything different. There is no difference between this body and the earth body. And I think that just being, I was forced so close to the earth, laying on the earth with slugs crawling in my head, my hair at night, 
you know, because they thought that I was part of the earth <laughs> under the tree. And, and feeling that the dampness and the wet and the just soaking into the earth the way that I was, becoming that, I really started to feel myself as that, as nature itself. And so now what remains in a way is that sense of just going through the cycles of my being as I should. There's no difference, dark or light, happy, sad, um, angry, not angry, whatever it is, it's just the cycles, the cycles of the seasons. So it seems that, and I've heard again and again and again, that when we are pushed to the limit, when we're pushed to the limits of our being, that something awakens. We expand, we stretch. You've heard the metaphor of stretching. You know, do that which will stretch you. Stretch you so that you become bigger. You become bigger than the way that you think of yourself in the limited ways, in the small ways. That we stretch our way of thinking. We stretch our way of perceiving. Because we are not seeing clearly. <laughs> We're not seeing clearly. We see things quite distortedly. And you can see that in the way that you have even experienced your day today. Ways that you, the thoughts that you've had about the past or about yourself or about your future. I mean, are they true? Are they really true? Or are they limited ways of perceiving? And so in the meditation, it's possible through the, through the practice of letting go, the practice of, of dissolving the thoughts and letting go the thoughts, clearing that space of consciousness for something to awaken, for something to reveal itself within our being that we haven't touched before, we haven't known before. And so we kind of expand or dissolve those places of limitation that we come up against again and again and again. And we come up again against those places of limitation. We say, okay, I'll turn back. <laughs> and then we go back to that place that's small again. So it seems that what we're being encouraged to do by the meditation masters in this tradition is to not stop anywhere, to touch all those places within your being, whether it feels good or it doesn't feel good, not to strive after just the good feelings or the, or the, the pleasant experiences or, or the experiences that you like you know, or that you want. A few people said today, well, the day didn't really go the way I wanted it to go. <laughs> But I think they said that with some awareness as well, not expecting that it should have gone the way they wanted it to go. But it goes the way it goes. It goes the way it goes. It is how it is. That's the way it is. So opening the heart, opening the heart is awakening. It's an awakening, a reawakening reawakening to that which has always been there. 
And we might think that opening the heart means becoming more loving, becoming more loving. And it isn't necessarily about becoming more loving. It isn't that being a more loving person is the goal in this practice, that we become someone who is open and and loving and accepting and patient. That isn't necessarily the goal of practice. It's a limited view. We might say that love, in the way I've been talking about it tonight, that love and kindness and gentleness, it's a pathway. It's a pathway towards the goal, but it's not the goal. Again, from Mark Epstein's book, Thought Without a Thinker, he says that freedom comes not through unconditional love, not through recapturing perfection, but freedom comes from freedom from greed and hatred and confusion. It's to be free of those those poisons, we call them poisons of the mind, that, that destroy our happiness, that destroy our joy. And the practice is one of showing us how these arise in our consciousness. How does anger arise? How does greed arise? Where does confusion come from? And through the attention, through the mindful attention, we can start to understand and see how these forces, these are the old forces, the forces of our past are operating in our consciousness. And through that exploration, we can interrupt those forces so that they're no longer having such power in ourselves, power in our minds and our consciousness. So yes, we bring that loving attention, but being the loving person or being love itself is not the goal but being free of those forces in consciousness that bring about our pain and our suffering. And as we practice, as we practice, we deepen into what's called the five spiritual powers. The first one being faith. We discover, we rediscover a great faith or what's called a bright faith or a verified faith in the truth of these teachings. A verified faith meaning that we know because we see that what's being said is true. It's as clear as the hand on the end of my arm. It's not blind faith. It's, 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 it's faith because we have seen it for ourselves. And we awaken energy because we're releasing the old blocks and wounds from the past. And we awaken mindfulness because the mind stabilizes. And we awaken concentration because the mind unifies and becomes more one-pointed and focused. And all of this awakens wisdom. It awakens that intuitive wisdom within us that's always there. And these five positive mental factors strengthen until they are powerful enough to dominate our consciousness. They become our consciousness. And it is this force of mind, this wisdom, which cuts through into the deepest truths about reality and liberates us from all forms 
of unhappiness and suffering. This is the power of the practice. And all it takes for us is to be present. There was a, there was a, a sign at a casino in Las Vegas that, that one of the yogis told us on a retreat. And the sign said, Las Vegas is the gambling capital of America. And the sign says, you must be present to win. So I'll end with that. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.